My name is Tom Hodgson. I am an assistant professor at the Herb Alpert School of Music here at UCLA. And I my work focuses on uh, music streaming, algorithms, and data science. Um, I have a bit of a mixed background. Um, I obviously have an academic background, and I've, I've done lots of research in Pakistan. Um, but I also have a background as a music tech um, startup founder um, back in the UK, and I also um, play in a a top 20 band called Stornaway. And um, all of these factors taken together mean that I've got a quite a keen interest in questions around AI music and where it's at, where it's going, what effect it will have on musicians um, and that sort of thing. So it's a real pleasure to be here talking to you. Cool. Um, so my first question is when you say AI music, I was reading some of your work and your articles um, and your website and stuff. And from my interpretation, when you say AI music, you're talking about the algorithms that Spotify and other platforms use, or what do you mean when you are interested in AI music? Or is that just a wonderful applicable term? Yeah, I mean, the work that I've published on um, streaming platforms, I think, isn't necessarily focused on the question of AI music. It's more to do with recommendation systems, which in a sense are a form of AI. Uh, mm -hmm. AI, of course, is a, a very big umbrella term um, that often, you know, means com computational processes like machine learning, which, which you know, we do see in Spotify's recommendation system. But I think you're right that we can kind of separate that out from what most people think of when you mention AI music, which is music, which is in a sense automatically created by computers. Um, so they are in a way quite separate things, but I think it'll be interesting to see where our conversation goes because looking ahead, I think they might not be too uh, as, as kind of separated as we might think. Okay, interesting. Um, okay, so I want to start with... This is on your website. You say the question of how musicians create value in economic environments that are being rapidly and radically transformed by migration, changing flows of money and new technologies. So that is the question that you're trying to address in a book that you're working on right now. Am I correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So how does AI enter this conversation or is it a topic in your book? With yeah. I, I mean, like I mentioned, I mean, my early research was actually nothing to do with the kind of technologies that we're talking about. And I spent a, a long time in um, rural parts of Pakistan and Kashmir, working with sort of traditional folk musicians as, as they travel around playing at weddings. And th this was, you know, back in, um, you know, 2010. And I've kept going back to Pakistan to work with these kind of folk musicians. And one thing that I noticed as my sort of research progressed over this period was, of course, this was also a time of quite radical technological upheaval. Streaming came along um, and that I started to see how these musicians in this kind of remote corner of, of Kashmir were increasingly using technologies like YouTube, uh, WhatsApp, and that this was having an impact on the kind of music that they were making. You know, it was starting to kind of shape certain repertories that they were performing. And it was also shaping um, musical pedagogies, so how they were 
learning music and how they were teaching music. And this then, for me, sparked a new question, which was how technologies that are built and designed in places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, and, you know, Northern Europe are increasingly kind of shaping the musical lives of people, you know, who are both geographically and culturally distant from where the technologies are, are designed. And so this, for me, you know, raises lots of ethical questions around, um, you know, power, control, um, how data is managed, um, how musical, you know, repertoires are incorporated into AI, you know, machine learning models and what that means in terms of um, the lives of these people on the ground. So, you know, it, I suppose it, it, my interests coalesce around that kind of question. And what I'm particularly interested in is thinking about how we can, you know, use both kind of digital methods to interrogate that, but then also combine that with the kind of work that I do, which is very ethnographic uh, and involves spending a lot of time with people on the ground to see how they are responding to new technologies. Um, so what, so what I'm hearing is like with AI programs with music, they're obviously coded on probably predominantly Western music data. And then to apply that to like music in the global South, it would be different. Yeah. Rhythms, different instruments, like an entirely different ball game. So how can we, how can the music world address that? Or like, what steps do you see people can take? Well, I mean, that's the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> if I knew the answer to that, I think I'd I'd already put myself out of a job. But I, th I think, well, two things. One is, um, sorry, there's a helicopter going past me at the moment. Yeah. One is that what you mentioned is really happening already. So what we can tell by interrogating, for example, Spotify's um, API, it's, it's, it's kind of... Um, the way in which it kind of categorizes music is very much based on Western understandings of musical scales. So their audio analysis models categorize music according to, you know, a whole range of criteria, but one of which is sort of key signatures. So, you know, for every song that's in Spotify's catalog, it can analyze that song and say whether it's in C major or D major or E flat or whatever. Now, of course, you know, not all musical cultures use Western modalities, you know, I mean, North India is a great example of this, where the Raga system uh, has its own kind of set of rules, its own terminology. And yet, if you search for um, North Indian classical music on Spotify, it will be categorized within these criteria. So there's there's a kind of, you know, a whole kind of history of thinking critically about this, Um Edward Said most famously wrote about these kinds of, you know, uh, formations of knowledge in his in his classic book Orientalism. So this is already happening. Um, but to kind of come back to your question, I think what I've seen, which is quite striking, is that we are witnessing, I think, a bit of a shift in gravity um, around these technologies. Um, you know, there are, of course, the the dominant platforms like YouTube and Spotify. But we're also seeing a lot of homegrown startups in places like South Asia um, that are, um, you know, based within these regions and obviously 
able to pay more attention to the kinds of sensitivities that we're talking about. And then, of course, you know, there's the you know the 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 big one, which is TikTok, which is a you know a Chinese um, company and produces you know its own kinds of anxieties for especially for people in the West that deserve a bit of you know pushback on in some ways. Um, so I think you know what the question of what can we do, you know, is very very complicated. Um, but I think this shift in gravity that we're seeing is gonna you know, in some ways start addressing those those questions, not to say that it's going to fully solve them. Um, this is on a similar note, but I, I, I've been reading about this topic and I feel like another one of the issues just with the application of AI in general is there's like a disconnect between the people who have the coding knowledge and the places it could be applied. So like, do the coders who are coding AI have the musical knowledge to understand how it can best be applied or what that would take um are there any like spaces or conversations you've been present in that are good collaboration or like what do you observe of this disconnect do you understand where i'm headed i wasn't settled on the question itself <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean again this is the the kind of the ethical question i guess and what's striking if you sit in a room of sort of Spotify engineers like I have is the extent to which like they are asking some of the big questions um, and they do have a, you know, really quite impressive research culture. But I, I think one of the, the big distinctions between say how a, a team of Spotify researchers address this kind of question and a, how a team of say um, academic researchers might address it is that they're primarily preoccupied with the question of you know can 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 we do this you know um, and less so about the the why and you know what the kind of implications are so for a lot of engineers the the question is you know music is this problem that can be solved through computational power and that's not really how we think about music say in the humanities where you know we already see it as this extremely complex thing and we're trying to understand how people um how people generate meaning through and by music or how we find meaning through and by music and that's a very kind of qualitative humanistic kind of problem uh that's very different to the kind of quantitative ways in which you know a computer scientist might think about how music is put together so the and the reason why i think you know there are of course lots of kind of thorny ethical um questions around that is that the way that ai music generation models are sort of built is that they you know they're, they're based on training sets of music and that those you know sets of you know musical scores or um, audio files at some level have to be chosen by engineers and those are you know value-laden judgments but also you know a lot of the time that's you know that's music that has been created by people at some point and it's being kind of fed into these AI models to produce, you know, quote unquote new music, but, you know, questions of copyright and who's getting credits and where we think about questions of creativity are left kind of hanging in the air. And, and these are, these are really big issues in something we see, not just with AI music, of course, but 
all of the attention recently that's been generated around like chat GPT and AI art generation models like Doll E. Um, you know, these are basically trawling the web of you know content that has been created by people and it's been kind of reimagined um by the ai models but you know who are the creators here and who's getting the credit they deserve um it's a really huge question that you know is quite unresolved at the moment um okay what are you most excited about in ai and music and then what are you most fearful or like hesitant to <laughs> so i think I mean, it's a good, I'm, I'm glad that you balanced it in that way, the question, um, because it's very easy to fall into kind of utopian versus dystopian views about technology. And in reality, you know, I think it, one falls usually somewhere between the two. I think in terms of the, the anxieties, um, my... I think it, it's not a huge leap to imagine a world in which you have the kind of knowledge that a platform like Spotify has about listening habits. So, you know, think about um, how how quite amazingly impressive their Discover Weekly playlist is, you know, that it, you know, has this kind of predictive capacity to suggest music that it thinks we'll like. And you know, the, the the amount of data it has on listening habits is really quite phenomenal. Now, imagine, sorry, yes, go on. Can I ask, could you vaguely describe if you understand what algorithm the Discover Weekly thing uses? I've always wondered, like, is it artist-based or like actual lyric component-based? I don't know. Yeah, it's a bit of a mixture of, 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 of that and a, and a little bit more. So the Spotify recommendation system, it uses... Well, it's based on three and, you know, maybe more, but three primary computational techniques. And they are, so the first one is called collaborative filtering. Mm. And what this does is it kind of measures your reactions to the music that you listen to. So everything from whenever you skip a song to when you click on an artist page, if you share something with a friend of yours these are all kind of like value judgments that the algorithm can gain some kind of measure on how much you like a particular song or not and it compares that with everybody else on the platform so through that it's able to kind of get a judgment it's like well you know you have been listening to this you seem to interact with it in this way all these other people listen to this as well in this way but they're also listening to that other song so therefore there's a good chance that you might like that other song too so that's 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 one technique and that's the same as what you find on like netflix you know uh, loads of these kinds of recommendation systems and then the second model is a, a called natural language processing which is yeah text based and you know chat gpt is a huge natural language processing model so this um is used by spotify to analyze things like lyrics but also um you know it control blog posts and news articles and search for key terms and adjectives so if there's a band um it can search for key adjectives around like good or bad or pioneering and again these are ways to kind of build up a value judgment but it's also a way that it's able to say recommend a song that might not have very many streams 
so it might be a new artist or a breakthrough artist um, alongside a song that's got millions and millions and millions of streams. So it kind of gives it a little bit of balance. And then the third model is audio analysis. Um, this is using um, what's called convolutional neural networks, the same kind of technology that's in facial recognition systems, mm -hmm. like with your phone and that sort of thing. And this is used to analyze all of the raw audio on Spotify. And that's what can determine things like, um, you know, the key signature, the tempo. Um, they have loads of really weird um, criteria like danceability and speechability. Um, and that means that Spotify can like organize music into, you know, quite novel and innovative genre categories, um, you know, around you know, moods and and uh, or sometimes like political movements and that sort of thing. So yeah, so using those, all of those together, it's able to kind of categorize its music and it's also able to kind of categorize its listeners and therefore make um, uh, the kind of actually pretty impressive predictions it does. Um, so where was I going with it? So this, I was, I was going with like the, the anxieties and hopes, I guess. Yeah, yes. Um, Thank you. That was very interesting. But it's, I'm glad that you did ask that because that gives a bit of weight to the kind of the anxiety question, which mm -hmm. is that given the kind of the very finely grained um, knowledge that a platform like Spotify has about our musical tastes, mm -hmm. it's not a huge leap to imagine a scenario where you have, you know, a, a, a big, say a big record label that owns an enormous publishing catalogue and um, creates a kind of training set for an AI music generation model. Now, if you could kind of pair those two systems, you've got knowledge about what people want to listen to on the one hand, and you've got an enormous catalog of pre-existing music to train a, a system on. If you had to bring them together, I mean, where would that go? I mean, you know, yeah. just click a button and Spotify will just play you something new, which is based on what you've listened to, but also... So, and, and the reason why that's slightly dystopian is because what happens to musicians in that scenario? It's like, how do you make sure the right people are in these spaces making these decisions? Like, that's the yeah. only question. And, and you know, it's driven by money. I mean, these yeah. platforms are there to make money, right? And actually the people who should, or, you know, arguably should be making money are musicians and composers, you know, people whose livelihoods depend on their creativity. Now, the caution against that, which is my more optimistic view and optimistic hope is that actually my and this is not based on any empirical evidence but my feeling is that the reason why we respond to music in the way that we do is because on some kind of very deep level we understand that it was written by another person as a kind of response as a kind of an emotional response to the way in which they've seen the world and that's why we can empathize with music. It's why you can hear a song and think, yeah, that kind of speaks to me on a certain kind of level. Now, is that going to be possible with AI? Um, I think sometimes it can be, but I think it's hard to imagine it being, you know, to the same extent as it does through humanly create. I think there's something very, very kind of, um, you know, I don't know, humane, hu humanistic about, the way in which we respond to music that I'm not sure will be replicated. And then actually that some of the most interesting kind of examples of music musicians using AI is 
recognizable in a longer history of the interaction between technology and creativity, which is that actually we use new technologies in really creative ways. And that gives rise to new kinds of music that we can't anticipate yet. And that's my kind of more optimistic view is that, you know, really creative people will use AI really creatively. And, you know, that that's probably what will happen. It's what's kind of happened with previous technologies, as opposed to this dystopian, like AI music is just going to take over the world and we won't need musicians anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading this interview with Ted Chang the other day, and he went on this rant about how our fears related to the rise of AI are just our fears of how AI will be applied within a capitalistic framework. And if we were mm. to like separate that from ourselves, we could just see it as a tool that is exciting. Yeah. And that's reminding me of like what your thinking process is related to this. Yeah. And I think, you know, in a way it's, you know, both will be the case. I mean, like, of course, some of the early iterations of AI music were exactly about basically cutting out the musical middle people, you know, yeah. that they were there to provide background music for radio plays, for adverts, for, you know, news clips and that sort of thing. So that's like, that's definitely happening. But it's also the case that, you know, there's some really interesting music being written that's a kind of collaboration between an artist and some kind of AI module. So, yeah, again, it's, you know, these binaries of, you know, good, bad, utopian, dystopian, I think break down really when you start looking at how it's used. Yeah, I love that, that creative people will just find a creative way to use it and then that will still be appealing to us because it's like seeing something unique. Um, Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me see. Okay. So we have this article that UCLA published when you joined um, the staff. It said, new UCLA musicology professor fights for algorithmic justice in the music industry. What does algorithmic justice mean to you? So that's a very good question because uh, I did not write that headline. Yeah, um, so... I anticipated a response like that when I saw your face. <laughs> um, I think obviously, you know, that, that was written by the copy editor uh, as a kind of like, you know, <laughs> attention grabbing. That and now we have to deal with it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th I think, I think it, if I can relate that at all to kind of what I do, I think it is less about trying to get kind of justice and, and more about trying to understand better, you know, what the impact of these new technologies is to people on the ground you know i think a lot of the time this question of like okay if we're going to use the phrase algorithmic justice it's like well how can we regulate um uh you know th the algorithms that are all around us that we can't really see but are having an effect on us um how can we solve like the black box problem that these are proprietary technologies um uh and therefore they're protected by corporate intellectual property um that even if we were to kind of get inside the black box how do you even read that kind of code because you're talking about tens of thousands of pages of impenetrable code so even the people who build these technologies often don't really understand you know how they work so you know and, and i just think in a way that's a kind of red herring we're, we're not going to get access to them so we should really try and shift our attention to looking and hearing from people on the ground to see how they're affecting their lives and on the other side of the equation uh looking and talking to the people who build the technologies you know so 
on either side of the kind of the interface, if you want to think about it that way, there are people. And, you know, those people are often in parts of the world that are very distant from where they're being designed. And so there's a lot of work to be done to bring that side of the equation, uh, if you excuse the pun, uh, up, up to date. Love the pun. <laughs> um, yeah. I was wondering, so what what draws you to like the undergraduate environment in these types of conversations and what do you hope to like contribute to the conversation at UCLA or what do you see as unique about our age and like what we can do with this? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a new member of staff here at UCLA. I think as you've, as your listeners may have guessed from my accent, I've come from the UK and um, what's really sort of blown me away about UCLA is, um, and particularly the undergraduates, is just the the kind of the energy that they bring to our classes. I'm running a, a course on the moment on music and data, mm-hmm. and the class has got a really nice balance of we've got some music students, of course, uh, but we've also got students from computer science, um, from economics, um, from communications, and. So what I've done is I've I've grouped the students into like little teams uh, and each team has got this balance of different methodological backgrounds mm-hmm. and they're given like problems to solve. Um, they've got an end of term group project that they're working on uh, and they can imagine themselves as either like a kind of proto startup or research team or record label or something. And the reason why I'm enjoying this so much and finding it very exciting is that, you know, Musicians, uh, this is a massive generalization, by the way, so take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. But musicians are often like really creative, uh, but not particularly innovative. And, you know, data data scientists are often really innovative, but not always that creative. I disagree with both of those. Uh I, you need to go to a hackathon like you have innovators and I've listened to musicians who know. Okay, well, in a way, yeah, I mean, you're right. And that's why, I mean, these <laughs> teams, these teams are like mini hackathons. Yeah. I understand the collaboration aspect and like the, it's amazing to see like the different kinds of minds that the fields attract and what happens. Yeah. When you get I, I think to add a bit of nuance, I guess coming from like, I'm coming from Oxford where I was previously a professor and, you know, within the student body of the music faculty and among my colleagues in the music faculty, you know, nobody really, people could barely use a computer to like write an email, you know, never mind like think about, oh, well, you know, can we use digital methods or write a bit of code? And I think that's what I mean. It's like, there was a lot of kind of um, creativity around thinking, well, I'd really like to be able to do this, but I just don't know how. And, you know, that's that's why having these kind of collaborative environments is so good. And they're just, you know, just coming back to your question, um, you know, they there's just so much kind of energy around, you know, let's just try and fix, you know, solve this, let's work together. Um, and so it's a very stimulating um, intellectual environment to be in. And then, of course, you know, the obvious thing about, you know, we're in Los Angeles and yeah. there, are, there are, you know, the music industry is um, it's just all around us. And that that brings lots of really interesting collaborations as well. Awesome. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, I don't know. I feel like I lost <laughs> across my mind, but that's that's awesome. How big is your class? Can I ask? I think it was. It's um, been capped at twenty five, um, and I I think that's because 
this is my first term teaching so they're they're going going gentle on me but (laughs) yeah uh but we're already we've already had a conversation um the chair of the department and i about increasing the class size for next year so i'm hoping next year if if anyone's listening and wants to sign up to this class there'll be there'll be uh more room for everyone cool um and what is the final group project you assign them out of curiosity well it's up to them so you know they we're looking at a whole range of issues. A lot, many of the issues that actually we've been discussing today um, in the ten weeks of the quarter. Um, but their group project, they can either produce, you know, they can produce a podcast, they can produce a business plan, um, they can produce um, like a a research paper. It's really up to them. So they're actually next week's class they're all coming back to present what they are going to do for their final project some of them are doing an app you know i mean it's it the whole idea of the group work is to think think about what kind of career you might like in the industry after your undergraduate studies mm-hmm. and could you actually produce something during our class that gives you something you can either put on your cv or you can develop some of your coding skills um so there's a kind of a good practical dimension uh, underpinned, of course, by some, you know, uh, rigorous scholarly uh, uh, endeavors, frameworks. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so it's good. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm really curious to see what they come up with, but it, it's largely driven by them. OK, cool. Um, those are all the questions I have for you today. But if you have any last points or if you have any other people you would recommend that I talk to, I'm open to both. Um. I don't know really i mean i don't really know much about the the landscape of ucla beyond my hmm. department and i think there was you know a good reason good reason why dean strempel directed you towards me because you know i'm a new hire in this area um do you yeah. what's what's the one thing you would communicate to the general undergraduate about ai music right now oh god he's, he's, he's put me on the spot there um know i think don't fear it uh you know i think um like at the moment this is again just my personal opinion you know pretty much all ai music generation systems that i've played around with are pretty crap you know when you listen to them they're just not very good yeah and, they're, they're not that appealing <laughs> no and so you know they're they sound the music they produce is just to me at least extremely derivative and, <laughs> you know it's not striking fear into my heart uh, <laughs> put it that way but you know it's a good moment to you know if you're if it's something that you're really interested in um to kind of roll your sleeves up and have a go at you know when there are new technologies and new moments of kind of upheaval these are also moments where there's lots of opportunities and you know your particular kind of generation and age group you know big changes are going to be happening and you know why not be one of the drivers of that change you know Mm -hmm. get stuck in if you see an opportunity there's like oh this could be really applicable for this other thing then have a go at doing it and there's a lot of you know liquidity out there in terms of raising capital and if you've got a good idea around music and ai and you want to pursue it you're surrounded by really interesting people um collaborate form a little startup and you know you might be surprised you know within a a year or two you might have raised half a million dollars or a million and set up your own company so 
things can snowball really easily, especially in this area where there's so much interest. Mm. Amazing. Thank you so much. All right.